Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Jonathan Saunders, who is the COO for Sun Culture, an innovative Africa-based agritech company. Sun Culture develops and commercializes life-changing technology to solve the biggest daily challenges of the world's 570 million smallholder farming households. Jonathan has a track record in building infrastructure for growth stage organizations that leads to institutional and government investments. As Sun Culture's first director of finance and operations and now COO, Jonathan has established the human resources, finance and accounting, sales, supply chain and IT infrastructure areas. His passion for creating social impact through operational excellence led him from a five-year career in private banking at JP Morgan to nearly 10 years in social impact investing and operational leadership in Africa startups. Over his career, he's worked for clients and organizations in Central America, Africa and North America. Jonathan earned an MBA from Columbia University and a BA in finance from Fordham University. In his free time, John enjoys playing competitive hockey and currently plays for the Nairobi Ice Lions after playing Division I in college. He's a New Jersey native and currently based in Nairobi and London. So, John, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Oh, excellent. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Dude, we have like so much ground to cover. Like... (laughs) All yeah. over the map. So I, I got to go for, I'm the Canadian, right? So I got to go yeah. for the obvious, like how does an African-American start playing hockey? That is just not like, or are you just yeah. young enough? Are you young enough now that you guys are going to take it? Oh gosh, young enough is, uh, that's the, definitely not the case here. Uh, I'm 30, I'm 37. Um, but coincidentally, my dad is Canadian. So, um, you know, Canadian, you know, hockey Canadian in my blood. blood. Exactly. Um, so my dad's from, uh, from Toronto. So half the family's from Toronto. And then, um, my uh, my dad was actually the fifth black uh, player in the NHL. Uh, Holy shit! Named, uh, Bernie Saunders, and so um, there's actually some really interesting articles that have been popping up recently. I uh, I remember the name Bernie Saunders. Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So so that's that is my that is my father. And so who did, he, who did your um, dad play for? The Nordiques. So wow. for those who uh, yeah Quebec real Nordiques. hockey exactly exactly so the Quebec Nordiques. Um, and then he played college at Western Michigan, um, where he's a Hall of Famer. And he, uh, you know, he kind of did this thing with his career where he went off, kind of bounced around the minors, played in the NHL, went back to the minors. But there's a minor league team in Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, which is where I was originally born, um, and Western Michigan University, which has a Division One team, is also there. So he circled back, finished his playing career in Kalamazoo. Um, and then my mom and him settled in there. And uh, yeah, it was uh, a long I came. So amazing. Um, well, pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty obvious then that, you know, if you're a son of hockey royalty, you're already there. And then also growing up in Michigan, <laughs> you're playing hockey as well. Like what else are you going to oh, do yeah. in the middle of winter, but play hockey? Good for exactly. you. Man. I've got, um, yeah, I used to be a Montreal, huge Montreal Canadians fan growing up. So that was a oh, okay. fun era. Very cool. And then Very you've cool. been able to live in three different continents for work. Or are you lived in two, but done oh. work? In, no, you've lived in three, Europe, North America. And yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yes. I, I bounced around quite a bit. And, and the funny thing about this is that prior to business school, I hadn't really traveled anywhere. Um, I was kind of in this, on this track of, you know, I want to work on wall street, think I'm going to make all this money. Uh, 2007 happens. I'm working at Bear Stearns. The, the sky falls out. Um, and I quickly realized that 
gosh, all these people have money one day and then have money the next, you know, maybe I need to do something that's a little bit more uh, altruistic or, you know, more, more fun. <laughs> um, and going to B school to kind of make that transition. Um, but yeah, through B school, um, you know, got the opportunity to kind of get some exposure uh, to Sub-Saharan Africa, did my internship at a place called Tugende um, in Uganda, which I had never been to before. And had one of the most amazing summers of my amazing. life, both, both working professionally. Um, and then worked in New York at a, at a family office. I was investing in social enterprises. So I was based in New York, traveling all over the continent of Africa. Um, then my wife and I moved to Nairobi, where I took up the role at Sun Culture. Um, and then my wife, she was actually the uh, former global head of HR for Andela, which is a large uh, tech startup. Um, and now she's uh, transitioned from that. Now she's uh, head of HR for a, a big private equity uh, firm, uh, CBC Capital or Credit Partners. And so wow. she moved us back to London, um, and now I get to spend a lot of time on a plane between uh, London and Nairobi when uh, the world's not in a global wow. pandemic. So, what a yeah, super, it's insane. super <laughs> cool, super super cool journey. Bear Stearns, did you ever <laughs> did you ever come across a guy there who lives in Toronto now named Bill Bamber? Bill Bamber, I know. I, what do you know? Which group he, he was in? By chance, he led derivatives for North America or for the Americas, so North and South oh, okay. America. No, I was on the I was on the private client services side of things. So he's probably okay. on a trading desk. And so yeah, I no, did not. Yeah, he led the derivatives group for that. And then he also wrote the book Bear Trap about the fall oh, okay. of terms. Yes. Yeah, so oh, okay. Have you read the book? Honestly, I've read I've read so many books on the financial crisis. I have not read that one. It's uh, great. I it's, will actually pick it up though. Because it talks about it talks about bear, and it's funny because I was talking to him one day, and he and he goes, "Lehman's gonna crash." I'm like, "There's no fucking way Lehman is gonna crash. <laughs> it's not gonna." So you got to work Wall Street at the height of it, and yeah. then and then you get into the social enterprise sector. Yeah, I I mean honestly, I, I it was one of those things where. Had you, just made it, had you just made enough money on Wall Street that then you want to do something <laughs> different? Or <laughs> no, no. I mean, I started in 2006, I think. And so I was probably like the class, you know, after everybody was getting these crazy bonuses where they kind of, you know, stopped paying everybody all this crazy money. Um, and I mean, to be honest, like I, I learned, you know, I definitely learned some stuff there, both on the private client services side and the private banking side. Um, but there was like, I remember distinctly a day where, I was get I was working at 270 Park once JP Morgan had taken over uh, Bear. I'm getting on the escalator going up to to the elevators, and I mean you know, everybody's in their blue, gray, or black suit. There's a big chase sign in the middle, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm like a drone or something. I'm not even a real oh. human being. Going to press these buttons, go sit at this little cubicle, press these buttons, turn around, and go home. And I realized that you know they, they paid enough to um, you know to keep you uh, uh, interested, but never enough where you're never going to make you know unless you're one of the top guys make millions and millions and millions of bucks. Not that was ever my, my thing. And so I just, yeah, decided that I wanted to do something more altruistic. I've been doing a lot of volunteering in New York um, at the time. I was like, okay, how do I merge this together? And this is when the whole impact investing, social entrepreneurship kind of craze just started kind of popping up. So right, right place, right, right time. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of got out of the Wall Street stuff, went to B school and been running around Africa ever since. So it hasn't, hasn't been too bad. Very cool. Yeah. I remember when the whole social enterprise sector started, one of my favorite, I, I've gone to the main TED conference for nine years. And one of my favorite um, TED talks ever was um, on the whole social enterprise space. And it was around, mm. God, when was it? Uh, 1999, I think it was. And oh, okay. yeah, it was really kind of the launch of that whole idea around social enterprise and what you could do with that stuff. It was kind of cool. So tell us a yeah. little bit about Sun Culture. What does Sun Culture do? 
Gosh, uh, we do many things. <laughs> Very, uh, you know, vertically integrated co company. Um, but at the, at the nexus of it, you know, we're trying to solve a couple of different kind of key challenges for farmers. Um, again, if you look at uh, other, you know, continents, think about the green revolution, um, you know, in Asia, for example, you know, kind of what, you know, what causes stuff to kind of happen? Um, we have the belief that, you know, farmers lack um, access to mod modern farming equipment, um, access to information um, and access to finance. And because of those three things, um, they're kind of stuck uh, in a certain situation where, um, you know, they're not able to massively increase their yields by just kind of coming into this new age of, of farming, if you will. Um, all three of those, you know, are still very prevalent, you know, not just in Africa, but in other places uh, around the globe. Uh, but what Sun Culture tries to do is try to solve um, those issues, you know, for those farmers. And so you kind of heard from our, our mission statement, you know, kind of develop and commercialize life-changing technologies um, to solve the biggest daily challenges. Um, and so we look at our customer base. Traditionally, we're taking somebody who is uh, using a, uh, you know, kind of like a pulley system uh, to, to pull water manually, uh, uh, 20, you know, 20 liters at a time, which I encourage anybody to try to do and realize how incredibly difficult it is. Um, they're also, if they're not pulling water out of, out of the ground, they're maybe uh, waiting for it to rain. So just kind of rain fed irrigation, which is, you know, obviously a thing of the, of the past. Um, and so what we've been able to do is uh, through our CTO is kind of, uh, this guy Charlie's like a, a Wizard of Oz kind of character, person behind the, um, uh, behind the curtain. Um, he's developed a, a suite of products um, that we're able to, uh, to sell to our customer base. Um, so a modular irrigation system um, that kind of strips out some of the, the fancy, fancier parts and gets it really down to its, uh, you know, kind of most basic uh, uh, kind of bare bones kind of concept. Um, we, uh, same thing on the pumping side, um, you know, farmers weren't able to purchase, you know, uh, uh, an expensive, you know, $5,000 AC, you know, kind of pump. Um, <clears throat> but how do we kind of find a smaller pump, you know, equip it with a battery, equip it with a controller, connect it to a solar panel um, and sell it to them. <clears throat> and then furthermore, you know, even if you are exposed to, you know, this uh, modular irrigation system, modular um, pumping system, so on and so forth, how do you afford it? Um, and so we do. I was so uh, curious if you're going here. <laughs> this is yeah. That's the, you know, that's the secret sauce, to be honest. I mean, like the, um, you know, we do our own financing. Um, so we do on balancing financing um, yeah. ourselves. And so we think about us, we are a, you know, obviously a, a product company. You know, we have our own products, uh, our Rainmaker 2 uh, on Climate Smart Battery product is a, is a very fat, quick selling product. Um, obviously an insane, you know, kind of logistics and supply chain. Most of our suppliers uh, sitting in Asia. Um, we're a financing company. We're a re retail company. Um, and we also have, on top of having a B2C business, we also have a B2B business where we sell to other distribution partners in other markets. And so um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, uh, the solar home system space, but in the last, call it 10 to 15 years, um, this kind of thought of, you know, you can uh, sell some, you can finance uh, a light bulb, you can finance, you know, a, a solar charger for, uh, for somebody has really taken off. And so what we'll do is we'll sell our, our solutions to some of these other uh, SHS companies. And so even though we have our B2C business in, uh, in mainly in Kenya, um, we do uh, distribute um, in Togo, uh, looking at Ivory Coast, uh, Uganda. We have a very strong partnership there. We've been kind of uh, working in Ethiopia with a couple of different partners. Um, and then the, the, the cream on the crop of all this is that uh, our solution, um, again, the modularity and the, you know, the kind of variety of things we're able to sell, um, we also come across like a lot of NGOs um, that will be looking to you know, if we're, thinking, we're talking about a, um, like a refugee camp, for example, you know, access to water is, you know, one of the key things or access to a stable food supply. So we have a team that will focus on, 
you know, doing uh, installations in, in South Sudan or Somalia or Northeastern Kenya. Um, so it really is a lot of different businesses within a business, but, um, you know, in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's some culture. It's interesting. I, I started thinking about, have you read the book, The um, Economic Hitman? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good book. It's a really yeah. good book. Yeah. Well, I started thinking about the, the, the way that that model worked with, with major corporations going in and funding growth in countries, but doing it in a very kind of capitalistic and almost Machiavellian way. Mm-hmm. And then was thinking about your model tied to that same idea, but in a much more altruistic way. If you're mm-hmm. going in and fund, are you taking equity positions in some of these farmers too? No, no, it's just straight, just straight debt, straight um, financing for the for the farmers. Yeah. Imagine, imagine if you could do that as well. If you could have warrants or something, or or just options uh, to be able to help well, people turn them into. It's, you know, they're it's so small of, that there's nothing there. But yeah, I was gonna say they're so small, and I think the um, and just what we're trying to do uh, in a nutshell, all the things I listed right there yeah. are so incredibly hard to pull off. Yeah, you're that's you're going you're gonna do the solar city. <laughs> you're gonna do the solar city, but of something uh, of the farming side in Africa, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, um, the, yeah, the COO, the 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 co-founder and COO of Solar City used to work for me back in 1993 at oh, wow. College Pro Painters. I got him into the whole house painting business in Toronto. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's cool. an interesting model. Okay, so tell us about you know your skills at Suncor now. What do you think you pulled with you out of the um, first out of your MBA and then second out of your uh, time on Wall Street that you you know what kind of skills or tools did you pull from both of those that you use today? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I would add, add one more on there, sports. Um, you know, I actually probably would start with sports. Um, I think that in, in my role in particular as a COO, um, you know, I almost think of it as, uh, you know, you're either a coach or a captain of a team. Um, you know, you're not necessarily scoring all the goals. You're not out there, you know, every shift, but, you know, obviously play an integral part um, in keeping people motivated, focused, you know, aligned um, in one direction. Um, and I think on my time, you know, playing hockey, uh, you know, really, really kind of set me up for that, you know? Um, and I think the biggest lesson out of that is kind of like the, you know, the, the, the team goal obviously is bigger than any individual goal. And I think a lot of companies, maybe sometimes you can, you can lose that. Um, you know, I think depend on, depending on different, uh, different, different characters. Um, so sports, I think hockey, number one has taught me the most kind of, uh, biggest principles, you know, relating to teams. Um, I think some of the hard skill sets, you know, from, from my time working at Bear Stearns and JP Morgan. I mean, gosh, like I, I was in, uh, I was at, at Bear Stearns. I was kind of front office working private client services, uh, JP Morgan. I was private banking, but middle office. Uh, so on the middle office side, our, our role was to kind of, you know, meet players where we're moving a lot of stuff around. You know, we would invest over a billion dollars a month, um, into uh, alternative assets. And so, um, kind of getting really good with, uh, you know, my Excel <laughs> skill set um, was like probably the biggest payoff, I think, you know, from there. Um, and then kind of understanding, you know, how these different funds, you know, were um, uh, kind of offering, um, you know, whether it's PE or hedge funds, so on and so forth, reading, the, reading through those offerings and understanding how they're marketing it to customers was something that I high level pulled away, um, but not something that, you know, something I applied directly to Sun Culture. Um, from the MBA side, I think it's, it's really interesting because, you know, MBA, obviously you do learn stuff, but I think like the biggest thing from, from Columbia was, uh, a, the network is, is fantastic. Um, you know, you can, I could be in Nairobi and link up with, you know, fellow CBS alums, you know, almost any night of the week. Um, so that, that part is huge. Um, I think two, uh, Columbia University, um, the business school itself had been incredibly supportive um, of my career. And so I can't thank them enough. And that's everything from, you know, like, look, I'd be fully honest. I, I 
went from JP Morgan to MBA and then went and worked and I was taking, you know, a major pay cut after my MBA to do the jobs that I'm, that I'm doing now. Um, but uh, Columbia steps in and they have this whole loan forgiveness program that I'm a part of because I work for a social enterprise, but kind of that, 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 that support that they provided me over the years have been fantastic as well as, you know, obviously links with the, the faculty and other students. Um, but I think the biggest thing out of, out of the MBA thing that, that I really learned was, um, it was like how to honestly take a chance. Um, I think people look at the MBA opportunity and say, oh my gosh, if I don't get this McKinsey uh, you know, internship over the summer, my life is over. If I don't go work at Goldman over the summer, life is over. My approach is the exact opposite. Where I was like, I, I'm not doing any of this consulting stuff and this banking stuff. We all leave here in two years with the exact same degree. What is the most riskiest, craziest thing that I can do over the summer and try to learn something? Um, fast forward i was i was i was leasing it was a uh this company called Tugende, um uh, an asset financing business uh we were financing motorcycle taxi drivers in kampala uganda um super started too went there there's probably 25 30 bikes on the road um now he probably has gosh if i had to guess 25,000, 30,000 bikes on the road and is a fantastic business um so i think kind of this being columbia itself just kind of gave me an opportunity to think outside the box, um, you know, if you will, you know, again, think about somebody who's coming from a Wall Street background and then put them in Kampala, Uganda with no instructions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Figure it out, you know? <laughs> you just you just said something as well, though, which, which kind of dawned on me, which is that you're really working in a market that is, by North Americans, completely disregarded. Like North Americans, right. especially North Americans don't know anything about Africa. You know, I've been to yeah. Africa a couple times, but they don't know anything about the con- the continent. They don't know anything about the the wealth, in, and they don't know anything about all the countries that are there that are, you know, massive, like huge, huge oh, yeah. markets. Like there's there's a hundred markets in in Africa that are the same size as California. Um, yeah, you know, big, yeah. wealthy, strong cities. So, do these businesses that you're looking at over there are they just are you extrapolating from businesses that ex- have existed in North America and then taking it into a market at a much, much lower price point, like bicycles in Africa versus bicycles in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's obviously so many different businesses and companies that, you know, um, so there are some that definitely are doing stuff like that where they see, you know, an opportunity um, or something somebody's working on in, in, you know, in the U.S., for example, and they just kind of try to copy and paste that, um, you know, in Kenya or Nigeria. Um, so, yeah, that definitely does does happen, but even in that copy paste, you know, there's just so many challenges that might pop up. Whether that's you know access to capital, access to human capital, um, and then you know I, I could go down a, a list of just all the things that I would never even imagine I would have to deal with over the time. So yes, it is it is the case, but um, yeah, sorry, because both the, that biking business that you talked about and then the business you guys are in now is really a finance business more than anything, isn't it? It's setting up a leasing company. Yeah. It's just setting up massive yeah. leasing companies, which is huge huge yeah and it's a it's a it's a proven you know a proven business model in other markets um something that works um you know obviously we're fulfilling a need um that is there but i think kind of like something small uh, well so for example for us or even for for the for the uh i'll go for together the 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 motorcycle taxi business for example right um so you think about it and it's like okay we're leasing this how are you going to collect how are you going to collect the money so we'd have these collection officers and you got to remember, most of the motorcycle taxi drivers are unbanked. And so you, you'd literally have a collection officer who would go and pick up the money and bring it back to HQ. And we put it in a safe and so on and so forth. 
not scalable whatsoever. But the guys don't have uh, don't have bank accounts, so they can't do a bank transfer. So what do you do? Stumble across this machine where essentially it's called Payway, and you can go in, and you can put money into the machine, you can put in your phone number, and you can either pay your water bill, your electric bill, whatever. Negotiate a deal with Payway. We get our company put on you know the one of the options immediately overnight turned into a cashless business and it goes from you know 50 bikes to 100 bikes to now again i think they're 25 30,000 bikes uh on the platform but i mean again leasing business yeah i mean that's 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 the basics but you know how are you get people to make, to make the payments no right right same yeah. thing with, with some culture i mean well that's what's yes, interesting it's a leasing business. The, the technology now is allowing us to do businesses that we used to be able to do 50 years ago in north america now we can start doing them over in in africa and india and china or asia yeah, and I think the interesting two thing thing as well is that you you have a, so you're taking the leasing business model and applying it to you know smallholder farmers, but then you also have this whole leapfrogging kind of concept. And so, uh, in Kenya, Mpesa is the is uh, is how you transact. It's uh, mobile money um, on a whole other level than you know you see in any other markets, um, and everybody uses it. You know, it can be you know the the guy on the you know selling bananas on the side of the street. You know, you can pay him a mobile money. Um, but the penetration rate is just incredible. It's probably like 80, 80, 85% of the population uses, uh, uses M-Pesa. So for us, you know, our, I would say 90, gosh, 90% of our payments are through the M-Pesa platform. And what does that do? That enables us to, you know, work with, you know, very rural communities where we can, you know, sell finance, you know, install a, a, a unit. And again, our customers are way out in the you know in, in the middle of nowhere um now we this can is sell a currency the, the impesa platform is using a currency like a, a fiat currency right it's not some digital currency it is a, a fiat currency of a country it, it's just it's, it's yeah it's the kenyan shilling yeah it's the yeah. kenyan shilling and so they just all the they have a, a network of agents uh around the com- around the country where you can sign up to be an agent um but you just have a float right so you put a dollar in you need a dollar out kind are of you seeing anything happening yet with digital currency and like a, a non-fiat currency like a bitcoin or ethereum are you seeing anything like so, that happening yet you see this? yeah you've seen a couple um because like you know the whole um you know kind of remittance uh industry kind of people the diaspora are sending money back um so people have tried to set up some stuff where um they'll use bitcoin there's a company called um, they just rebranded but they were called bitpesa before but it was something where essentially you could buy bitcoin and then they would get you a, a very favorable rate and convert it into shillings you could send it through and pass it to i'm just to somebody curious, in the middle I'm curious of whether someone's going to build that closed loop network for you know massive markets in places like africa or in asia where where you can actually move away from a fiat currency it, it could be crazy Huge. Yeah. yeah no i mean there, there's people bring, bring i mean there's some stuff. yeah no i mean there's there's definitely there's definitely I think opportunity, and I'm sure I'm sure somebody's working on some some iteration of that. But I mean, for, for Kenya, just just on the investor side, just no, you don't even need to go there. Straight yet. to show nah, you know, you literally yeah. don't. You literally don't. It's 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 just incredible. And again, the businesses that have sprung out of it, you know, every. And almost every business is based on, you know, the Impesa platform on some way, shape or form, which is, which is amazing. Wild. Now you mentioned that you are working with a social enterprise. I'm still not quite clear how this is a social enterprise. Cause, or are you, was, yeah. be, well, for us, I mean, I, again, like, you know, we're, you, mean, we're you, don't, you don't mean it's a, it's a charity or like a nonprofit. No, it's no, just, no. It's no, a company for, that has a, uh, that's a for good component to it. 
Exactly. Exactly. You're, yeah. You're like, nice, well, okay. You're a nice capitalist. You're not a not, you're not running a nonprofit <laughs> or an NGA. No, and, no, 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 no. We, I, yeah. Yeah. Very clear. Yeah. We, it's definitely a, a for-profit business. You know, we definitely run it, um, you know, in, in a for-profit, you know, way. Okay. Um, and we've taken on, you know, institutional capital from, uh, investors that definitely expect a return uh, on okay. their investment. We can still be, um, so yeah. can still be friends then. That's good. <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to understand how, because you told me earlier that you'd done a Series A round. I was trying to figure out how, it, I thought you said NGO, but you'd said you're more like a, a social enterprise. Okay. So yeah. what, what does a social enterprise mean? This is a, you know, a newer 20-year-old-ish concept, but I'm sure a lot of people yeah. don't. And what's a social enterprise? Well, I think it's just kind of like some type of dual bottom line. Um, you know, yes, you know, we exist to make money, but also we exist for, you know, some type of greater good. You know, the, the greater good that we're striving for is try to provide, um, you know, our customers, um, you know, with a way to increase their income, you know, by via increasing their yields and so on and so forth. And so, you know, double, sometimes I say triple bottom line, um, but, it, you know, it's, uh, you know, you do good, you know, yeah, you want to make money, but you also want to do good along the way. And so our, our end goal is, you know, we, you know, we want to eventually, you know, we're scale, we're in the process of scaling this business as we speak. Um, but also when we talk to our investors, um, you know, they're very much focused not only on the financial, but they're also focused on, um, you know, what, what good are we doing? How many, for example, how many women have we approved for loans? You know, what is the, the yield increase of our farmers? You know, what is the, the income increase of our farmers? How many more kids are we enabling people to put into school? Like these are all factors that, that kind of factor into, uh, you know, what the investors are looking for from an ROI perspective. So let me, let me play devil's advocate and pretend that I'm like on the far left and I'm a total tree hugger and I'm working <laughs> for an NGO somewhere. And I'm like, no, you're not. You guys are just a pure capitalists that are selling stuff to people that can't afford it. And you're locking them up into these long-term leases. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's uh, the, the situation for us, right. Is that um, we are, we are enabling people to purchase modern farming technology that can massively increase uh, their yield. And we're doing it at an affordable price point, um, which is, you know, why we have to finance that equipment over time. I think for the, the difference um, and I think very highly of the, of the solar home system companies, you know, they've really blazed a, a path for us. But the key difference for us is that we're actually financing an income generating asset for somebody. Um, and so the, the minute it. they start using our, our, our product, um, you know, they can start making money and, and, or, or saving money. And so obviously people think of us as a, you know, an ad company, but you can almost bucket us as like a micro water utility. You know, people are using it for cooking, cleaning, bathing. We have a guy who's using it for car washes. We have people who have apartment buildings are renting it out. And, you know, they're, it's, it's how they're, they're able to access, uh, access water. Um, and I think kind of you obviously layer on that, that irrigation component too, where, you know, somebody who's using drip irrigation can save roughly it's like 75, 80% of the amount of water than they would traditionally use. So there is that kind of conservation on the water side, but also if you're paying um, for it, it's obviously better to use to use less water. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it does come up. I mean, people are very like, oh, you guys are just trying to, you know, it's not an actuality, you know, so we're financing an income generating asset to a, a market to, to serve a demand that um, has yet to be met. And I think that in the last, gosh, five, I'm, I'm going about five years with Sun Culture now, um, you know, our market share in Kenya, East Africa, across the continent has just, absolutely exploded. And I think the really interesting thing is that you see a lot of, um, you know, solar home system companies, for example, or distributors are kind of looking at us and, you know, they're, they're yeah. purchasing from us and we're doing the training. We're saying, gosh, just financing an income generating asset makes a lot more sense than fin financing a non 
income generating assets. Like we sell TVs, for example, but it's not our not our core product right. we sell. So TV breaks, what do you do? Right. You stop paying for it, right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't care. TV broke, I'm not gonna sign and make my payments. But if your income generate, yeah, yeah. Wow. Your water turns off. <laughs> figure it out but you guys so are I like think, you guys are like a, a smaller version or a more entrepreneurial farm-based version or whatever of general electric like ge and ge finance like like giving countries these massive pieces of equipment to do things you're doing it at a micro level it's amazing yeah that's a, that's a, and never, nobody's ever made that comparison before but that that is uh that I would, yeah definitely could think of it that way um and i think the one thing i would add just real quick is that I, the, how our unit actually works is that the, the the controller so where the the battery and the controller sit they're connected to the panels and all stuff's connected to the pump but there's a there's a sim card in it so it's connected to the cloud and so what we do is and everything's over in pesa right everything's over mobile money and so we can set the limitations where, so COVID, right? So COVID, you know, people have had issues paying, you know, the first couple of months for an Kenya called like April, May, June, you know, there was just a lot of, everybody's worried, not sure what's going to happen. Um, you know, we, we were obviously very forgiving, you know, understood that people were, were going through a challenging time, aren't going to turn off the pump. Normal times, like not that things are all the way back to normal right now, but, you know, we've had to be, you know, kind of uh, restate some of our, our stricter measures on our, on our portfolio kind of performance. Um, if you don't pay and it's connected to all this ways through a DB, if you don't pay, your unit automatically turns off. Wow. You top it up and you pay your monthly installment, your unit automatically turns back on. It's wow. Not, so we're able to automate all that in the background. And then again, that enables us to scale. But again, the, you think back to Impesa, how important Impesa is to you know the backbone of the business. Um, it, it couldn't it's, exist. It's incredible. It couldn't exist. No, no. No, it's not, not even possible. You'd not be like the dollars so. over in, in India or Mumbai, the dollars that bring yeah. the food, the food, food wallets. Exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. You said something really, really early into when we were speaking. I think I understood it was you said it's it's about also bridging information with this technology, with the financing. Is the information yeah. side of things that you're actually helping these people understand how to use these tools and make money as well? Like, are you teaching them how to farm and how to use the water or... What did yeah, I? Yeah, so we. Or am so I making it, it up my own? No, 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 no. So it's it's a it's a it's a broad stroke, but I think the um. So obviously we do the 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 training at the at the time of installation. So we have an engineer shows up, installs the unit, shows people how to work it, troubleshoot it, so on and so forth. That's you know a, a very basic kind of knowledge transfer. Um, we also have a a platform um that we call Ag Optimized, and so we're in the process we're installing sensors on the farm um, while uh, at, the, at the point of installation. Um, those sensors connect back to the controller unit. Um, and the sensors will pull something like, um, you know, say, is the is the water dry? Or sorry, is the is the soil dry or is it wet? That will send a notification to the cloud, sends a note, and then it sends a, an SMS to the farmer and says, hey, you know, your soil is wet, you should dry, you should irrigate. Or it will sense the moisture in the air and say, oh gosh, it's going to rain. Don't waste your time irrigating because it's going to rain. So we kind of that knowledge transfer there as well. Um, we do partnerships with uh, other people in the ag value chain. Um, so that might be something along the lines of helping farmers better understand what the market prices are um, for their fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and then also a lot of just farmer training. So we've set up a, an array of demo farms um, across the country where a farmer can go and maybe, you know, learn about drip irrigation, you know, and, and see our products um, or bring their, you know, bring their family and friends to kind of better understand, you know, how the pump works. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that we transfer knowledge, you know, both directly at the point of installation through technology and through, you know, some of the partners and demos that we do um, across. But the key is that that continuous 
uh, training, uh, you know, for our customers, um, really, really, really is, is key. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I start, I'm thinking about just all of your users and what they're doing with the products and their ability to share what they're doing with others in a community. So they like, here's what I'm doing mm-hmm. with the pump and here's how I'm making money off this. I almost think of like a, you know, kids that are sharing their ideas of their, whatever their little small business or hobby is with each other. Well, so, you, see, you see, you see like when, uh, when we'll do an installation, the thing that happens is we'll, we'll go install a unit and then all of a sudden, you know, all the neighbors will go over and say, what is going on here? What are you right. doing? And then, Engineering, it's incredible. It takes maybe, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 minutes to, to install a pump, depending on the, the depth of the, and the water source. We drop it in there and the guy flips a switch and everybody's like, oh my gosh, okay, what is, how do I get my hands on this? And you say, okay, well, we do provide financing if you qualify. Oh, okay. You know, people sign up, you know, just immediately. Um, and so, yeah, it really is that, you know, that kind of that knowledge transfer, um, that kind of network effect we're able to have on some of these smaller uh uh, communities is yeah. yeah is real is real and again we're one piece of a broader puzzle but i think a very important piece as it, as it comes to in uh, empowering you know smallholder farmers uh in east africa super cool the organization that you're building what percentage of your team would be full-time or you know employee 1099 type and then what percent are you outsourcing through partners yeah, so so we have uh, gosh, just number off the top of my head. I think we have 130 full time employees um, at the at the moment. Um, then we have another about 150 agents um, who are strictly commission based, um, and so they're you know out in the field, you know, selling. We have a call center, but we also have you know our, our people in the field doing that. Um, and then we work with a small array of uh, of, of contractors and consultants um, on some key projects. But it's mainly that you know the not called that 130 full time employees are the you know, the real nucleus of the, of the organization. And then, you know, our field teams, specifically our agents and our engineers, um, engineers are full-time, but the agents who are uh, on a commission uh, about 150 to 200, and it really depends on the, on the month. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, the, the business has grown. When I started, I think it was 20, I want to say 20 people. So the fact wow. we're almost, you know, almost at 300 is <laughs> it's insane to think about, but quite exciting. Now you're based in London part-time and Nairobi part-time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I gosh, COVID's really thrown me off where I haven't, I haven't, unfortunately haven't been able to go to, to Kenya, you know, travel situation. Um, but, uh, yeah, usually I'm you know, on a plane twice a month, um, which is insane going back and forth, uh, between Nairobi and London. My wife, again, she was a head of, uh, HR at Andela, um, and now is a head of HR for CBC credit partners. Um, and we did, she did three years, I think in two and a half years in Nairobi, I did this under four. Um, and so, you know, she wanted to move up here. We just had a kid. Um, so yeah, we're based out of London and I get to, when you can travel, go back and forth to, to Nairobi quite a bit. But I would say the the caveat to that, and I'm sure you've, you've probably seen all the businesses you've run is, you know, it's, it's, I'm going through this interesting shift right now where, you know, before I would say I was the guy who pressed all the buttons, right. As it running around like a crazy person, super stressed out, you know, living, we we're like living month to month, you know, trying to, trying to raise capital and do all this stuff. Um, now with the team we have, um, you know, my job is less on the execution side and more on the strategic side. Um, and so, you know, it is important for me to be in Kenya as much as possible. And, you know, I love going when, when, when I can, but um, it's, it's very cool to see that, you know, now, you know, we're in a spot where we have very strong heads of department. We have an excellent um, uh, general manager um, and they're really running, you know, the day-to-day, day-to-day business you know, with my help and, um, and support, but, you know, I give them all the credit, uh, for, for everything that they've been able to do, especially in the last year. And where, where's your team based then? Are they all over there in Kenya? 
Nairobi. Yeah. Nairobi. Yeah. So my team is, uh, yeah, everybody's in Nairobi. So we have, um, it's all very, yeah, everybody's based in Nairobi except for our field team engineers and agents that are, you know, um, strategically scattered throughout, throughout the company, throughout the country. Um, and then in our international business, we have, we're starting to, uh, open some stuff up in West Africa. So, um, mm. We are doing a massive, uh, uh, I'll call it a project, it's not even a project, but through our distribution partner um, and EDF. Um, EDF is one of our big funders, um, a large French uh, utility firm. Um, they have us moving into Francophone Africa. So we have a team of three people over there that are working um, in hand-in-hand with our distribution partner. And then our, uh, we have a small team in Ukraine of some, of some engineers, of two guys in, in, in Ukraine. And then you know, our supply chain, a lot of it's in China. So we have uh, a consulting team that works wow. in China. So a, a global, really a global business. Um, but myself and our CFO, is uh, he's based uh, in, in England, UK. So him and I okay. are always flying somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and then and uh, where, did you, where did you raise money? Did you raise money in Western Europe or were you raising money in, in Africa or America? Where were you guys raising from? So, Mainly uh, Western Europe. So EDF, uh, French, you know, French utility firm. Um, and then we have, uh, and I think a lot of our angels were U.S. or um, uh, or in you know, England. I'd say a couple of couple in uh, in Kenya, which we're very thankful for. Um, uh, and then our 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 biggest shareholder um, is actually a fund that's based out of Nairobi um, called Energy Access Ventures uh, (EAV). And so what they've done is they've raised a lot of um, DFI money, a lot of development finance institutional money. Um, and their whole thing is that they're focused on um, kind of off-grid solar. Um, and so we are one of their portfolio companies, but they have been um, you know, obviously extremely supportive of Subculture over the years and, and, and an excellent partner. And I think the beauty of that for, for EAV, uh, for us, is that you know, having our largest shareholder in, uh, in town is, is, is very convenient. Um, it's a good, really solid fund. And then I think the, the folks at EDF as well, even though they're based in in Paris, uh, you know, they, it's a global, they have a global business. So their teams are always in, in Kenya or in, uh, you know, Togo or Cote d'Ivoire or other places. So, um, so yeah, so wow. but yeah, mainly Western, Western European and, and American money. Um, so. This is starting a, a trend, unfortunately for me is, um, on an episode I did last month for the second command podcast, I ended up buying stock in the guy's company. And now I'm going to end up putting <laughs> to, a, to a mutual fund based in Nairobi called energy access. <laughs> I think, you, I think you guys are going to be bigger than Energy Access Ventures is going to be. You're going to be bigger than them. Oh, gosh. I got, yeah. I got a third one. Another member of our CO Alliance, I just invested in her, um, I guess, a series. A. It might even be a pre-series. I think it was their angel round because, anyway, uh, certainly wow. bumping into some cool opportunities, some cool ventures. So, so what's it like? culturally working with these different countries what are you learning about the the executives not not the front level hmm. staff but more the executive team management team how do they operate differently in africa or in nairobi specifically because it's not fair to talk a whole continent but how, how are the executives in nairobi different from one in london or some in china yeah, I mean, it's, it's more, I mean, it's more or less the same. I think the thing that you find that's interesting in Nairobi is that you have uh, uh, an interesting split where you have a lot of, um, and I fall into this bucket, so I'm speaking about myself, anybody, you know, for anybody listening, but you have a lot of post-MBAs that move to Nairobi that want to do something, you know, on the social impact side, you know, if you will, um, and are, build a company and they build a lot of the, you know, kind of executive or, you know, director level uh, management is a lot of expats or yeah, very heavy expat, um, which I think is unfortunate because I think in a place like Nairobi, um, there's a ton of talent there. A lot of really sharp folks. So you ask where a lot of people are coming back to Nairobi 
and to Kenya. People who haven't been to Kenya, highly recommend going. It's a wonderful country. Um, and I think that's the difference that we've we've taken is that we have we've actually kind of shied away from making it a you know kind of very expat heavy business. Um, and so you know more or less outside of this, outside of myself, CEO, CTO, um, CFO, um, and a director of a director of international BD. You know the rest of the 295 people are are uh, are Kenyan, um, and in West Africa they're you know, Togolese or uh, uh, Cameroonian, I think. Um, so I mean, it, it, again, I think like the, the the biggest thing is that there's not a huge difference. I think in in terms of you know how people go about their day or interact. I think like the biggest thing is just that you know for us, you know, we built very much so a, a, a Kenya business with 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 kenyans not right. expats coming in you know saying oh you got to do this you got to do that it's like it's very much so a, a kenyan focus business it's interesting like i worked i coached a ceo coo from bangkok thailand and his uh, ceo is part mm. of their ypo chapter there and they control 37 percent of the gdp of the country just this guy's why oh my god extraordinary <laughs> but the coo running you know a five thousand person company was often very just dis- not um was very worried about hurting his boss's feelings or arguing with mm. his boss or telling his boss how he felt. I was like, Oh no, you, you mustn't tell the CEO that I'm frustrated. I'm <laughs> like, dude, what the fuck? Are you kidding? <laughs> it was just really, it was a very diminutive. Is that the right word? Like a very um, mm. subservient kind of a culture. Mm. And yeah. uh, even though his boss was a really nice, super friendly human, amazing person, it was just very different culturally from what I'd ever seen in North America. And then in India, I coached a group in India and they're like, oh, but we can't fire the people. We have to employ them for life. I'm mm. like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? Well, um, I think in, in Kenya, there is definitely that. that so, gosh, so culturally, there's definitely like that kind of hierarchy to the, to the society. It's a very, you know, especially men, uh, very male dominated, you know, kind of hierarchy. Mm. And almost from like a frustrating standpoint, there are situations where people are scared to kind of break that hierarchy or right, kind of speak right. out against the boss, which, sure. which drives, it drives you nuts. For us, it is, I think, kind of building A, build, making a Kenyan business. Um, and I think B, um, you know, like I, yeah, my job is COO, but like it's to me, like I, I more work for my employees as opposed to my employees working for me. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, my relationship with all the folks that I get a chance to work with, um, you know, just around the office or, you know, kind of whatever, it's, I try to make it as flat and as open as possible. I try to open up those. But it sounds like that's lines. very much the expat MBA culture as well, right? Versus the the classic Nairobi executive. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. In some cases, yes. Yes. Definitely the case. And I think for us, it's been, um, you know, putting people in positions, uh, you know, where maybe they don't have the experience or the background, um, but they just needed the opportunity. And so I think like for us, for example, the like our GM, um, Kenyan woman, you know, she's worked probably six, seven years, you know, in the kind of solar home system space. She's been with us for, I think, three years now, used to run our our finance department, never met a GM, you know, by no means, always been, you know, kind of a very good accountant. Um, But she's really good. She's been running, running the show for the last kind of call it nine months. And she's, you know, she's knocking out of the park. Um, Very similar on the, uh, on the, uh, on the sales side, you know, we have two ladies that um, we can never figure out like a national sales manager. We, I've been through four or five of them since my time at, at Sun Culture. Um, and they stepped in and they've done a fantastic job. And so I think like for us, not only being Kenyan, but also being, you know, if I think about our, my, my direct reports, it's pretty much 50-50 men, women. And I think that the, the both do an excellent job, but I think the women don't see as many opportunities um, yeah. as uh, maybe they, they would have. And I think even furthermore, just kind of how we, are, how we communicate as a, 
as a company, um, you know, this really helps and hopefully helps empower people to kind of speak up and, and be creative and kind of really make the job, you know, make the job their own. And I think that the, the key with our business, kind of that kind of social impact kind of standpoint to it, most of our employees, I wouldn't say all, but most of our employees, yes, it's a job, but it's also, there's like a higher purpose that's going on here. Like they, you know, feel that, you know, we really owe, you know, a, a very perfect, you know, solution to our customers and truly care about the work that they're doing. So, um, but, you know, trying to instill that into the culture of the business has not, not been easy, but I think it's something that we've been, you know, kind of successful um, at so far. That's cool. Very cool. All right. We go back to the John Saunders graduating from college, playing division, <laughs> division one hockey. What, what kind of advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back when you were maybe 22 years old? Uh, I think don't chase money. Number one, not that I, you know, I tried doing that with the wall street thing and it, it didn't work out. Um, you know, I think that, you know, if you can figure out the sooner people figure out, at least for me, this, the quicker I figured out that like the currency that I traded is more kind of experiences and relationships and not necessarily dollars and cents. Um, you know, it's made my life a lot happier. So I think, uh, you know, make obviously experiences and, and relationships are, are number one. Um, I think that, uh, travel. I wish I would have traveled more. And, you know, my eyes were just, you know, I just didn't know anything. I honestly didn't know anything but hockey till for the first 20 odd years of my life. That's all I did. Um, and so kind of opening that up would, be, would have been huge. Um, and I think the other thing too, like the number three, I think that, you know, kind of thankfully through Columbia uh, got me into, um, and again, hockey, you know, athlete, high, you know, division one athlete into, uh, you know, working at JP Morgan. My, my thing was always structure, structure, structure. Um, you know, I wish I would have taken more risks, uh, earlier on. I'm very happy with how things have ended up. Um, but I think it's when you kind of really start pushing the envelope and kind of get outside your comfort zone. That's when, that's when things get interesting. So, um, yeah, if I could go back and tell myself those three things. Uh, I'm curious what, what, what would have happened where I would end up. So <laughs> well, it's going to be interesting watching you and getting to know you in your career. Cause this is, um, you're just getting started and holy moly, have you ever got some, you got some momentum going behind you. It's interesting. You've done some incredible Thank stuff. You. It's going to be fun to watch your work. John, thanks so much for sharing with us on the second command podcast. Appreciate it. You've been listening to second in command brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.